give you thanks for this day, for the wonder of it. It is a gift given to us, the wonder of breath and love and grace and mercy. As we gather on the Sabbath day, we ask your blessing upon us, especially as we turn to your word, your light unto our feet, that we may glean wisdom and a way to be, a way to go, faithful to the calling of Christ. Bless John David as he leads us. Allow your spirit to dwell richly and deeply within him and around him, and that we may all be partakers of that same spirit of wonder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. Them. All right, thank you. Okay, uh, a couple of people are just starting to come in. I want to make sure everybody gets a book. Anyone still requiring a book, needing a book? We got one. Okay, brilliant. All right. Well, good morning. Nice to see every one of you. And also delighted that we have uh, what some people would consider an educational nightmare, but I consider the ultimate um, situation. We have probably from age 11 to the... (laughs) Okay, so we have the entire sentient thinking age spectrum in this room today. And uh, three of my favorite younger scholars are here. So I'm excited about that. And um, Sierra is sitting right here. I commissioned her. I told her I want her to listen carefully to what I'm going to talk about today and uh, tell me what she thinks from a young person's perspective and that she has to tell what? Yeah, like the truth, right? (laughs) Right. So anyways, I encourage the rest of you to do that as well. Uh, Before we get started, I want to remind you that um, in my classes, you know, I think that the feedback is just it's starting to sound a little Jimi Hendrixy, <laughs> And I mean, that's cool in its context, but not, not in my ear. It's gone. Now, it has something to do with exactly where I'm standing. That's... Well, it also has to do with the fact that we just added wireless. It's not turned on and working yet, but I think there's something... Okay. So. Well, uh, we can live with that. But if we can get rid of it, that'd be cool, too. But I, I encourage the rest of you to remember that in my classes, there's no such thing as a... A stupid question, a dumb question. Um, does anyone know what the term idiot actually means? We use it in our culture today when we call somebody an idiot. It's almost always with derisive scorn and superiority, and we imply what? That the person is dumb, not intelligent. Actually, idiotes in the original Greek didn't imply any of that. It just meant somebody that was uninformed. So you could be a genius in one area of your life and know virtually a lot of things, but in another area, you could be technically called an idiotes just because you weren't informed. Does anybody, would anybody agree to the fact that they're like an idiotes when it comes to things like carpentry? If somebody asks you, you know, throw up a wall or uh, fix, you know, build this house, you'd say, what? Um, I cannot, um, it does, but it doesn't mean that you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you couldn't learn how to do it. It just means currently you're an idiotes in the sense that you can't because you don't know enough about that particular subject. 
So, um, some of the stuff that I write in this book, uh, it is uh, written from a point of view that I can, you know, that I'm trying to respond to people that they may be, in the technical sense, idiotes about certain things. That doesn't mean that they're stupid or that I think I'm smarter than they are and I'm speaking down to them. So, if in the first introductory part, if, which we're, which we're, we're going to cover today, if um, you know, if we get into areas and you're like, well, why is this important? Or I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. I would really love it if you would let me know this. And it'll be regarded as, okay, I just want to learn. It's not that I'm considering you to be dumb or that I know more than you. It's just that we're talking about a certain type of thinking in the first part of the book. Now, my aunt used to say there's nothing worse than a newly minted PhD. Does anybody know why that is? Yes. Uh, the aura of that mantle falling upon you, uh, to be around it for the first few years, in most cases, is pretty nauseating. And I think um, you could also say there's nothing worse than somebody who's just published a book. And why would that be? <laughs> Oh, yeah, so the implication is, wow, you think you know everything now. Well, I just want to say publicly and formally, I absolutely don't. Um, never claim to, and this little book is my best effort to speak to, good morning, um, a particular type of person. It's actually written for all people, but it is actually written to a particular audience. And I have to use a, a term uh, to tell you, and this is a term you may have heard or not, but how many have heard the term postmodern? Okay. Now define it, yes. Well, you can see when anything is post, what does it mean? After. After. So if you're even going to think in these kinds of constructs, which, by the way, is not something that I invented. This is something that Western academics have tend to have embraced as a model. Well, then, prior to postmodern would be what? Modern. And if you really want to sound cool, you can say modernity. That makes it sound like you're really intelligent. The modern age, the age of modernity, and of course, then it makes logic sense to say what? If there's a modern, then there must be what is known as a pre-modern era. And you see it printed different ways. Sometimes it has the dash, sometimes it doesn't. It's just one word. So pre-modern would be before the modern era, and post-modern would be after the modern era. And of course, anytime you use these kinds of constructs to claim that you are analyzing the flow of human history. You're actually no longer doing history. Does anyone know what you're doing? There's a t technical term for it in academia. When you're, trying to, when you're trying to tell somebody what history means, uh, like for example, I have brought today just to sh show you, this is called the Encyclopedia of World History. And it's one of my favorite books because you can look up here and they'll give you a date for virtually every <coughs> event that took place. Now, the book doesn't purport to tell you the meaning of history. 
It just tells you the facts. So if you want to find out one event X, Y, Z happened, you crack open this thing, and then it's the very best historical knowledge that we have, a source book. The dates have been cross-triangulated and confirmed. They're very accurate. You can count on it. It's what we know. But the one thing, you could scour this, you could memorize this book, and the one thing it's never going to tell you is what, what, it, what the meaning of human history is. It'll tell you what happened, but not why. So anytime you claim to, to say something like this kind of stuff, that you have understanding of the flow of human history, you're not actually doing history any longer. You're doing what academics call meta-history. Okay? And when you do meta-history, what you're claiming is that you're able to sort of stand outside and above the flow of everything and then break it up so that you're saying this led to this and this was this era and then this happened and this means what and you're making the connections you're not just describing you're now interpreting and claiming to say you know something about the flow of history and then of course to do that you'd have to be able to give like characterizations of what people were like in these different eras to even make sense about using a construct like postmodern. So for example, I wrote this book to these people in particular, but I wrote it for everybody. But I was really particularly trying to reach out to this kind of a person. And in my view, the two characteristics that most likely show up in the mindset of people who have become postmodern uh, are two things that are associated with some of our most profound scientific theories. One is relativity, and the other is uncertainty. This is the mindset or the corollary or the ambience or the attitude that is associated with people who have really embraced and gone into, whether they've done it consciously or not, the postmodern viewpoint. Now, why relativity? Anyone want to take a hazard, a guess on this? Why would people feel things are relative? There's no really absolutes. Uh, yeah, why would this suddenly become, uh, why would uh, the mindset of, hey, well, you know, that's your truth, that's your perspective, Everyone's got their own truth. It's all relative. Uh, that might be the way you see it, but, you know, I see it this way, and there's really no way to adjudicate between the two. Why would that be a strong characteristic of our age? Because we, in our age, are into the big word tolerance, and we're not going to state what we know any better or different than anyone else might know. All values yeah, and one of the reasons that came up, the tolerance movement came up, is because in this postmodern era, the amazing array of what can be believed suddenly was more adequately displayed for human beings. And in my book, I call this the, the mall of all beliefs. Now, how many of you love going to the mall? No one will admit it. Well, one, Hannah will admit I, I detest going to the mall. Uh, it actually affects my brain cycles. 
something happens, the stimulation, the blinking lights, the, the, I, I get sensory overload and I get like stoned. I get, <laughs> I have to leave, I, something weird goes on. Well, um, but the one thing I've learned and the reason that I feel that way is when you go to a mall, there's everything basically that could be gotten or had all laid out in competition and everybody's claiming what? That theirs is the best and it's just an overwhelming sensory input. You should have these things because they're the best and in the end, you are subjected to what? Do you really know which is the best? No, you, you buy what you like based on your own personal taste. And I think that the tolerance thing was is when, when it became suddenly apparent over the course of the last 50 to 75 years how many different religions there really are, how many people there really are in the world, and all these different belief systems. And when that really started becoming part of people's true consciousness, one of the ways that they tried to deal with the cognitive dissonance with, like they all conflict, how can they all be right, was to say what? Well, we don't really know who's all right, so what we need to do is to acknowledge everybody's got their point of view, and nobody's necessarily right, nobody's necessarily wrong, we need to be tolerant of one another. That's how, that's how that came about. But does anyone, can you think of, does this word jog anything in anybody's mind? Relativity. Yes. Uh, yes, relativity is just another way of saying that everything is subjective. It's the way you experience it. Uh, that becomes your truth. And since your subjective experience is different than mine, I can't presume to really know your experience, nor can I presume to know whether it's, in quote, true or false, because it's your experience. So it's a subjective way of looking at things. The theory of relativity. Yes. Anyone remember the date? See, we can, we can look it up in the uh, Encyclopedia of World History if you want. Having done that, I can tell you that it was in 1905 that Albert Einstein published his first paper, actually a series of three papers. They're called his Miracle Year. And in one single year, when he wasn't even working as a physicist, he's working in some uh, Swiss uh, postal store uh, doing uh, grunt work, but in his spare time, he's transcending uh, the known laws of physics and, and rewriting the entire way that the universe works. In his spare time, he pops off these papers, he submits them. The leading physicists of the day get them and their first response is when they're asked, is it true? They say, we don't know enough yet. It's gonna take us a year to really find out. That's how far ahead he was. And then over the course of the next 20 years, through various testing and experiments. He was so far ahead of the curve that it took 15 years to figure out an experiment to even see if his theory was right. And one of the things that he predicted is that light would actually bend around a magnetic body, that light was not always straight, that it actually bent. So finally, they figured out how to conduct an experiment and watch the bending of the light rays. Uh, and they proved that light bends. And they wrote to Einstein and said, uh, you were right, and he said, 
I know. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing is, one of the things that he discovered was that time is not really constant. It's, it's relative. And it depends on where you are in time-space and how fast you're traveling that will determine your experience of time. So that shattered everybody's brain right there. Like, what do you mean time is relative? No, it, it's constant. Well, yeah, it is constant if you're looking at the world from what? An Earth-centered point of view? It's constant then, but what he did was go on behind that and look at it from a cosmic point of view, and now he discovered what? Time is irrelevant, really. It's, it's relative. And uh, how about uncertainty? Let's see what our current scientific knowledge is. What, what does that remind you of? I, yes, you are a scholar, man. How did you know this? What do you, what do you know about Heisenberg uncertainty principle? How'd you like to? <laughs> now, interestingly, that is exactly why they made the lead character in Breaking Bad, the story of a, of a chemistry professor who breaks bad, who goes bad and becomes a meth dealer. He becomes a very bad person. But he takes the no name Heisenberg as his street drug-selling, meth-making name. Well, yeah, because he was a scientist and he was hip to this amazing thing that Heisenberg discovered. Does anyone remember what it is? You get a gold star for... Yes, he destroyed the entire notion that you could ever be totally objective. In other words, even your very presence studying subatomic microns has an impact upon them. That shook everybody up because then what? Everybody prior to that time was believing what? That a human being could look at a certain body of evidence and in an objective, abstract way completely analyze it, in it and, and understand it objectively. Now suddenly Heisenberg tells us what? Even your closest observations, you're mingling yourself in them, so therefore you are not really seeing reality as it is. There's some perceptual shift going on. On top of which, on a more technical level, he said, you can never know the, uh, at the same time, the speed or the location of subatomic material. You can know its speed and you can know where it is, but you can't know where it is and its speed at the same time, which leads you to a state of what? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. And when Einstein first heard this, and this is, of course, on the subatomic level. This is on the deep sub... This is quantum physics. And you might say, well, that's got nothing to do with my life. Yes, it does, because it's, it created such a revolution in the way scientists look at the universe in other words, what Heisenberg finally came to was that this subatomic force field that is the entire cosmos, it's essentially random. There's no, there's no essential uh, actual plan to it. It's just going crazy however it wants to go. And yet it's so big that eventually, over time, statistically, 
these little pockets of what are called order get thrown up out of this mass gurgling boiling cauldron of a cosmos and in these little pockets where order temporarily gets thrown up then we do stuff like what <laughs> well do we do stuff like science like on earth and we claim to be able to study things and find out the way things really are but He's saying, look, that's just working in this tiny little place where you're happening to be looking right now. If you could see the whole uh, field of quantum physics, you'd realize there's nothing there but what? Chaos, Chaos and uncertainty. <coughs> wow, that, you know what Einstein said to that? He didn't like it at all. And he said, I can't believe it because I can't believe God would play dice with the universe. Now, why did he say that? I don't believe that because I don't believe God would play dice with the universe. In other words, when Einstein looked at this and he's being told, look, there really is just random chaos at the very structure of the, of the cosmos and these little things that we call laws are actually just statistical glitches that once in a while work out but really at the core there's nothing but random chaos and he says well I don't believe that because God, that would make God playing dice with the universe why do you say that because it would mean that every time an order comes it just happens statistically but it doesn't really it's not really reflective of primal reality and that would lead, if you really believed that, if, if that really turns out to be true, one certain type of a mindset would say what? Well, then that makes everything uncertain. Because how do you know for certain that the little statistical bubbling of these little uh, subatomic materials that happen to be forming the basis of what we call life on Earth, if it's truly random, how do you know it's going to continue to be tomorrow? It might just cease working that way and uh, the whole thing could just fall apart according to the laws of uh, thermodynamics. Entropy increases. Um, so this, all this order will fall apart and then you're left with what kind of a feeling? Uncertainty. And Einstein wanted to believe that behind the whole thing, the whole cosmos, that eventually he was going to find what scientists call today um, the T... O-E. Does anyone know what that means? <laughs> the theory of everything. <laughs> I love it. The theory of everything. It's the theory that what? That claims to explain everything. Even if it's, it, you could be an atheist and have a theory of, of everything. And there are some atheists that do put it out there like that, that the universe is really just a matter of random chance compilation of atomic material, statistically clumps of it once in a while organized in some semi-orderly fashion. It's all statistically, uh, you know, basically you might as well say chance. And that's just what the universe is. There's no plan, there's no purpose, there's no designer, there's no God behind the whole thing. That's my theory of everything. Then there's people that have, are still holding on to a more uh, pre-modern view. And that was when people, once upon a time, 
when they started talking about truth, they talked about it in terms of capital T truth. And the claim made by these pre-modern people was you could know capital T truth. Most of the people that believed in this theory were what we would call theocentric. In other words, they believed that behind the universe there was some form of God or gods. I'm not worried about, you know, making... I mean, for obviously, for, for those of us who are Christians, we read the opening chapters of Genesis and we find out, you know, that behind the cosmos there was a creator. But, you know, there were all these other different uh, viewpoints, too, uh, besides the Judeo-Christian one. And they are all claiming that, you know, there's something there. There's some transcendental order to the universe. There really is some truth. And then when science, this is <clears throat> when people primarily got their information and their belief system from the sacred zone. But then over time, even though people back here did use science, the scientific age or the modern age is characterized by that time in which science becomes the primary way that human beings can learn capital T truth? No, but what can you learn through science? You can learn facts. In other words, you can learn little t truths. You really can. And this, where would you, where do you think this era, where would you put it in the West? When, when, did, when did we move from being primarily looking to the sacred for information about the meaning and purpose of life? When did we make the shift from that to the modern era? And, you know, it was obviously incremental, but is there a time, can you, can you, industrial revolution? The Renaissance? The, uh, the Enlightenment. <clears throat> when the... The lens. The lens. Uh, so, you know, somewhere in the 1400s, the 1300s. <laughs> See, this just shows us the fluidity of this kind of thing, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. But, you know, it's all incremental, but little by little by little by little, you know, it it suddenly morphed and blossomed, and then the next thing you know, we really are in the era in which basically science, the scientific way of knowing, is the primary way that people get information. So the switch then moves from having somebody reveal truth to you, capital T truth, to humans using reason and the scientific method to mine for themselves truths that they find in all of the different disciplines that comprise the so-called liberal arts education. And that includes the arts and the sciences, or the arts too. Um, the science of music becomes not just uh, people playing however they want to play uh, around an ancient campsite. It actually becomes a codified science a right way, a wrong way to do things, and then, you know, he continues to explode. 
So what, if we start here around 1300, does anyone, I, ha, I have my answer for this, and I'm not saying that I'm correct, but I have my answer for when I think we moved from this surging modern era into the post-modern era. Uh, so if you read my book, you already know my answers, if, and then that's not important. I mean, I'm gonna talk about them, but what would you think? When, wh what do you think are some significant events that would have caused human beings to move from this growing, we are discovering truths, we are really growing, we really know stuff now, <clears throat> to this time in which knowledge is starting to look relative and everything is starting to look uncertain. Yes, sir. Okay. So some back, somewhere back here, we d individuals began to discover that if I look through a lens, I can independently and individually discover certain truths, and I don't have to depend on a church or anybody else to tell me. Galileo independently discovered. Okay. Okay. So it's America's fault, really. <laughs> French and American problem. Okay. All right. Well, good. I mean, that's the political strand. I mean, there's like so many different factors that we could cite. I just want to get you thinking about this, assuming that you even buy into the fact that we are living in a distinct age. You don't have to buy into that. I think we are. I think a change has come. But before we, yes, sir. Well, I love the Civil War thing for this reason, because you'll never, we'll never see this probably again in America, but if, when you read the second uh, uh, inaugural address of Lincoln, it, it's a philosophical theological treatise. It's like, this isn't politics. He's engaging in sweeping meta-history, speaking like a true prophet. It's incredible. I don't know how he got away with it, that just shows you the difference in America. You couldn't give a speech like that today. But what does he say in the second inaugural uh, address? Well, we just went through this war. Both sides prayed to the same God. Both sides claimed that they were following the scriptures. Uh, both sides claimed that God was on their side. And then he says what? Um, uh, God's not on anybody's side. And in point of fact, God let this happen as an, uh, a response to the sin of slavery. And so nobody won. All you did was mutually punish each other, north and south, for founding this nation on a lie in the first place. That's what he said. And so then he said, well, okay, so everybody screwed up. Everybody misread the Bible. Nobody knows for certain 
whose side God was on in the, in the Civil War. We don't know that. So we have an uncertainty about it. The only thing we can do now is do what? Start over and go forward. That's his second inaugural address. It's predicated upon the notion that just because you pray and read the Bible doesn't mean that you're going to achieve cosmic truth. He uses logic to show that can't be. So I like that one. I, li I like that idea. Now, you also said the first use of atomic weapons, which is one of my, well, the way I look at it is that there were many precursors, and I didn't want to write like a history of the world in the introduction, so I just chose the two that I thought were the most significant that ushered in the modern, uh, postmodern age. One of them is 1945, and of course there were a precursor of years prior to that. Um, 1938 is when they first split the atom. 1945, first use of atomic weapons. Why would that have a tendency to rush in a, or usher in an era of relativity, relativity and uncertainty? Um, yes, here, this glorious rise of science that has produced so many wonderful things for the human race has reached its apex. It actually penetrated the hidden essence of nature. It actually learned how to take nature apart and create miniature suns. Uh, it's an amazing amazing phenomenon that humans could do that and we turned around and used them primarily for what? To lay waste to and end a war. Now, I'm not criticizing their use. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying that, you know, Truman did what he thought he had to do and he had all these rational arguments for it, saved a lot of lives, all of which is probably true. But the fact is, is that after they were used and people looked at what happened, most people said what? Well, yes, uh, initially they said good because the war was over. Yes, I understand. But then they said, th this is so much destruction that we cannot allow this to ever happen. And so you all lived through this. You know, we had the Cold War, the whole race to control. And now, every day, one of the lead articles uh, in all news accounts is what? What's, what's one of the pulsating threads that is in front of the consciousness of our world today? Other countries getting access to nuclear weapons, particularly AKA Iran, and all of that ongoing daily stuff that's going on. And you know, I remember I had an Israeli <coughs> come in and lecture to one of my senior classes one time. He was an official of the government and the topic was on nuclear weapons. And one of the kids just, you know, didn't realize that you're not supposed to talk to diplomat, diplomats in a, in a uh, completely open-ended way. So he brazenly says to the um, diplomat Israeli, uh, well, we all know it's true that Israel has atomic weapons. Who gives you the right to have atomic weapons in the Middle East and deny everybody else the right to have them? And, of course, it's Israeli... Po and I... I um, commended my student for uh, chutzpah, for nothing else. <laughs> and 
Uh, he, he was good about it. He said, that's a great question. Uh, it really is the question. Um, but that's what we're arguing about today. And we're worried about it because why? These weapons introduced what notion? As wonderful as science is, what? It, it, it has, has the promise of completely uh, killing us all. I mean, it, it just puts a, sha a, you know, a cloud of uncertainty over this whole era. And of course, you know, you're going to wind up slitting your throat if you wake up every morning and play Barry Maguire's old song, The Eve of Destruction. I mean, that's not the way we're supposed to live, but, I mean, how can you, this cloud, this atomic cloud, is hovering over this age, and it makes this age different from this age in the sense that we can now kill each other, all of us. And then there's a second revolution that I describe in my book, which isn't as well known. This is a nuclear cloud. What do you think this is? This is actually a brain and the brainstem. And this is the realm whoop, of psyche, and this is the realm of physics. And here in physics that we've discovered that the universe is really at its core apparently random. And it's also capable of unleashing terrible power and we've learned how to do that and we can now blow ourselves off the face of the earth. Very uncertain. What happened in the realm of psychology in the 20th century that has created a similar, complete, absolute, total paradigm shift for many people in terms of the way they think about life and truth and meaning? Uh, you say drugs. Now, it is, it's, not, it's true that drugs have always been part. When we say drugs, I mean, let's start with all of them. Like, first of all, the ones that are most popular in America, like alcohol, what else? Caffeine. Drugs, yes, caffeine, Starbucks. <laughs> this, is a, this is in your, in your uh, very backyard, there is drug purveying going on. Caffeine is a drug. I mean, this has been all part of the human experience, but something happened in the uh, late 30s, early 40s that I describe in my book that super accelerated this whole thing. The discovery of a substance called LSD that happened in 1943. Now, what most people do, most people remember LSD from the 1960s, and th those of you who are old enough to remember this, give me some of your pictorial memory bank pictures. What do you remember of when the 60s and the LSD movement were described? What was, what's your memory? A Haight-Ashbury era. Haight era. Well, what, do, what comes up in your mind? Well, yes, drugs, but I mean, what images are there from when uh, uh, hippies? Communal living, psychedelic colors. psychedelic colors and posters and all this ex riotous explosion of artwork that's like, wow, you didn't stay inside the lines, dude. <laughs> Weird. Uh, different ways of dressing and clothing. Yes, sir. An experience. In fact, uh, Jimi Hendrix wrote uh, one of his albums was titled are you experienced? 
Well, the wink, wink, under the sensor's layer of meaning that was attached to that, are you experienced? He's asking people, have you injected LSD into your chemicals and had an altered state of consciousness experience? Have you done that? That was the question. <laughs> uh, I, the fact is, is that what, what really entrenched, and, and this is what, what a lot of people don't know. I went to the 60s, but forget about them for a second. This is what a lot of people don't know. When LSD was first discovered to have these incredible psychological effects, they, they don't even know if it's the drug itself that affects the brain or if it's the drug that uh, releases certain uh, synaptic uh, chemicals inside the brain, and that's what causes the trip to happen. We don't even know that yet. But what we do know is that the United States government, first thing they did when they found out about it, was put together this program called MKUltra. Our US government did it. And they studied for 20 years, many times covert, meaning without people realizing it, dosing and dousing people with LSD mescaline, psilocybin, plus many, many, many other kinds of pharmaceuticals because they had suddenly discovered what they thought maybe could be the ultimate what? Weapon, psychological weapon, truth serum perhaps. You could give somebody a tab of acid and completely wipe out their ability to act as a covert spy and you could extract from them all, like a lot better than waterboarding, right? Just give them a little tab. They go off on a trip. You interview them. They're not able to, to cover up any longer. It was really thought to be, this is going to be great. Also, they thought, this might be a great way to wage war. You fly over a city, uh, release, and, you know, LSD is so powerful that you just need a minute amount of it. I mean, you could, you could douse an entire city with Canton, probably with like five pounds of it. That's how powerful it is. So they said, well, this would be a great way to wage war. We'll just fly over, release this gas that contains LSD. People will breathe it. And while they're sitting around con contemplating the infinity of the cosmos in a dandelion, we'll walk right in and take over. So they, they worked on this. Did, did you guys know this, that our government did this? Uh, they set up uh, secret places uh, this one guy said he had the greatest job in the world working for the government because what he did was rent out a place in San Francisco and uh, got a stable of prostitutes to work for him. They would bring the, the clients into this room where they set up a two-way mirror and cameras. Uh, the girls would then douse the, uh, what do they call them on the street? The Johns with LSD and then the government would watch what it's like to be tripping while you're engaged with uh, sexual intercourse with a prostitute. The United States government did this because they wanted to find out about it. They did Now, the other interesting thing is, which many people don't realize, from this period forward, all through up until 1966, when LSD was made a class one felony drug, so tw 
23 years, stone-cold, solid medical research was done on this drug by very, very serious researchers, culminating in well over 1,000 peer-reviewed research studies on the effects of LSD and all these other drugs on all kinds of different situations. In other words, there was a body of research at one point that was showing that it's a very therapeutic agent to help alcoholics get free from dependency on alcohol. There seemed to be some uh, curative power that LSD could have. Administered by psychiatrists, the purest form of acid that Sandoz can make, no contaminants, virtually no bad trips, although there was some abuse as always in all of these things. But for the most part, just this huge body of information that seemed very promising came up by the uh, researchers. And then what happened was is that it got released out of the laboratory and there are even some conspiracy theorists, I'll just throw this out for those of you who might be here, that believe that the government actually created the 60s itself as a social experiment. They wanted to see what would happen in a controlled environment. What would happen if you gave people these kinds of drugs? They wanted to study it, and they found a bunch of kids in the Haight-Ashbury district uh, of San Francisco that said, we'll do that. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, what happened was, remember, you lived through it. It exploded all over the country. And now not in a government-controlled way, not in a carefully supervised medical way. Now LSD can be bought on the street by some kid that's 13 years old. And they can have a complete alteration of their consciousness. And all of the research that I have uh, read about LSD, the one thing that sticks out and is a sobering thing is all it takes is one single LSD experiment to permanently alter the imprint of your consciousness. Once you go through it, it's not something that you can ever forget. That, that's the, the findings of the research. So it's kind of like when you walk through that door, you're not really walking back out. You've been, as the hippies used to say, psychedelicized. And that's going to stay with you. Now, what's happened in our culture is, and if there's one thing that this substance does to the human psyche, is what? I know none of you ever took it, but what did you hear? It, 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 it takes you beyond the realm of reason, takes you beyond the realm of fact, takes you into straight, white-hot, blinding, personal experience that is an interaction of your brain chemicals and the chemicals that are being injected into your system. Uh, beyond reason, um, beyond time, a sense of time, and the relativity of time is a reported uh, phenomenon. The relativity of all perceptions is noted in the literature. This is the common experience. People say, oh, I get it, everything's a perspective. And so it creates increasingly this notion of uncertainty. So I'm sure that if you think about it, um, you could find other uh, dynamics, and I believe there are many more. But for me, these two are the big ones that have altered permanently from 1945 on 
what's going on in the human experience. And so we now live in a world, I think, and I'm going to use a big word here and, and see how many of you are familiar with it. Ineffable. What does ineffable mean? Look up your book. <laughs> well, my book is ineffable? <laughs> it defines it. Yeah, it does define it, but I just want to know what you guys <laughs> have heard or think. When you say something's ineffable, what do you mean? It's going uh, that's inevitable. inevitable. It's beyond description or explanation. When you have an ineffable experience, it's when you cannot find words to match up with the experience. Or, have you ever had one of these? Have you ever been struck wordless, speechless? You just... That's ineffability. Or, the final stage, philosophically, is when people say, you know what, reality is so big that it could never be explained with words. You might as well just get used to it and li live and actually enjoy this sensation of the ineffable, that reality, God, the mysteries of the cosmos, they're beyond any human conceptions that we can have. So it's okay. Like, open yourself up to the experience and have an ineffable experience. Well, think about it. If you live in a culture that it tends to believe that most, any truth is ineffable, can't put a word to it, never going to be able to describe it really, only thing you can do is experience it. Well then, what's going to happen when people who are pre-modernist, who believe that there is an absolute capital T truth, and they believe that it is contained in a set of books. What's going to happen when those two sides try to communicate and relate to each other? We have a side here that says, no, we have the truth, and it's written down in a book, and the words tell us. Versus people who are saying, reality is beyond words. It's ineffable. It can never be captured by words. All words do is put your perspective, your subjective experience, out there for the rest of us, but you're not really defining reality. How, how are you going to bridge that gap? What do you think? Well, maybe you start to see this as that. Maybe you start to see... This is describing that. Maybe, maybe this actually has been describing this all along, and we got confused and thought that it was actually a book about something that, that we were going to master a book rather than a book that was going to lead us into true ineffability experiences. Wait, did that make sense to you? Maybe we misunderstood what the point of the book was. Maybe if we started talking to people who believe truth is ineffable and saying, well, we think so too, and we think, go ahead.
Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, if we could present it right, that we're not um, shoving a comprehensive theory of truth down on your head, but we're saying that this story leads you to have ineffable experiences, that might help. That might communicate better. Yes? Uh, yes, if you bring the incarnation into the mix and stop only talking about um, uh, the Word of God as being a book and start referring to it as a person that can be what? Experienced. Because that's what the Christian message has been all about. You can have an experience with the living Christ. It's supposed to be an experience. It isn't supposed to be just reading about Jesus in a history book and saying, okay, I, I know the 49 miracles he did. I know what he did when he went here. Now, it's actually supposed to lead you into this cosmic experience. Well, maybe if that's the way we started presenting things, maybe these people would be able to understand better. Yes, Jack? Well, I think that uh, as we look at the Old Testament, this psyche approach allows us to understand better what happened with Moses, what happened with Noah. All of those take on They had these uh, chironic moments of yeah. exposure to the divine. They wrote, reflected upon it in a book, but the book itself points you always back to the experiences they had, not to the book itself. Okay, so we're out of time this morning, but I wanted you to know all that so that you can understand what I'm trying to do in this book. I go through the rest of the book and I show over and over and over again that actually the New Testament says that you're supposed to be having these kinds of supernatural experiences with Christ that are ineffable. That's supposed to be the normative uh, pattern and not just talking about it all the time but actually experiencing it. And th this is one way we can, I think, adjust to our modern world. Okay, yeah, yes, Doc, and then we'll go to... It, it, absolutely, I, know, I really appreciate you bringing that up. There's like so many different precursors that could be cited. That's why every time you try to do this kind of historical analysis, you, you always wind up reducing and you know, not talking about everything. But those absolutely, the postmodern movement in literature uh, was huge in getting us to the place where people just look at books as being texts that give a point of view, not as things that convey truth. All right. Well, and it's more than an experience because when God, Jeremiah's words, I will put my law into your hearts, Jesus is the law in our hearts, but Jesus is in us. So it's not just experiencing God, but living, knowing that God is within us. 
Yeah, that's living like an ineffable experience. And that's the core message of the New Testament. So hopefully um, you'll have fun reading the next two chapters. And that's what we'll talk about next week. So God bless you. Have a great week and see you then.